This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Mattress Firm's Labor Day sale ends Monday. Get a king mattress for the price of a queen or a queen for a twin for a savings of up to $600. Plus, get a free adjustable base when you spend just $4.99. And Friday through Monday, get a Beautyrest Queen mattress for just $99. Visit mattressfirm.com or a store near you for the best deal of the season. Only at Mattress Firm. Offer valid with qualifying purchase. $99 mattress offer available in-store only at the Boss Supplies last. Restrictions apply. Valid at participating locations only. For offer details, visit mattressfirm.com slash sale. You are listening to On the Daily, the RotoViz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by RotoViz Radio. Hey everyone, I'm Matt Friedman, Matt F. the Oracle of Fantasy Labs and RotoViz. Welcome to the February 17th, 2018 NASCAR edition of On the Daily. I'm joined by Dr. Nick Giffen, an owner of RotoViz, a PhD in mathematics, a three time qualifier for the DraftKings NASCAR main event, and one of the best NASCAR DFS players in the world. You can follow him on Twitter at RotoDoc. Nick, uh, Daytona, it's finally here. We are one day away as we're recording this. Yeah, this is super exciting. Um, man, it's 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 a new year. So we're going to be doing this, like you said, for the rest of the season, 36 races. Uh, and this is just the first of 36. We are going to have somebody, though, who has a race win under their belt after tomorrow and probably be uh not love a good deal sail into the season at banana republic factory's mega labor day sale entire store 50 to 70 percent off dresses from 1999 polos from 1699 find your nearest store or shop online only at banana republic factory locked into the playoffs but almost assured of a playoff spot already by the end of tomorrow so that's going to be pretty awesome so uh yeah the season started and we're already going to possibly have a guy and that's that's the cool thing about nascar versus like other sports like the new england patriots win their first game of the year you can't say i mean i guess you basically can say they're in the playoffs but like if the washington redskins win the first game of the year you can't really say they're in the playoffs whereas like you know if kurt bush wins the first race of the year like he did last year he's in the playoffs yeah that's uh that is a cool feature of the sport and uh i guess yeah it would be nice to not go into tank mode but to be able to sort of experiment with things for the rest of the season to fine-tune some of your process but uh yeah just in general very exciting that uh we have like a quote-unquote real race to talk about i mean because the the clash is great and the duels are great but uh nothing like daytona 500 so uh, let's get started with it. It is a two and a half mile tri oval and is one of the two tracks on NASCAR that uses restrictor plates. Uh, for people who've been playing for a while, they have a sense of restrictor plate racing, but there might be some new people listening. Talk about what we should expect from this race. Yeah, so um, of course, like you said, uh, restrictor plates are being used at Daytona and they are also used at Talladega and that's very important because it produces a very different type of racing than all the other tracks we will go to this year. 
Um, because these tracks, Daytona and Talladega, are so big, and not only are they big, but they're also highly banked. You know, we, we have two other two-and-a-half-mile tracks on the circuit at Pocono and Indianapolis, but they're flat, so there's a lot of braking going into the corners, which keeps the car's speed down. Well, with the high banking and the long distance at Daytona, without restricting the car's ability to, uh, you know, regulate their speed or anything, they could go upwards of 220, 230 miles an hour. So what NASCAR does is it has a, a plate that it puts that uh, has some holes cut out in it, and the holes are a certain diameter and size, and it restricts the airflow to the engine, which limits the ability of the engine to produce uh, horsepower. So it, it regulates the top speed of these cars. It keeps them just under you know 200 miles an hour when they're running by themselves. Uh, and so all of these cars essentially can hit the same top speed, which means they all go basically the same speed and just stay in one big pack. Uh, and the reason they, it's even easier to stay in a big pack is because the cars in front are pushing the air out of the way for the cars in the back. So it allows the cars in the back to have less air resistance and they can suck up to the car in front of them, push the car in front of them, and cars actually go faster in tandem or in the draft uh, when they're in the pack than they do a single car by, by themselves. So um, you get north of 200 miles an hour when you're in the pack. So it's a very interesting kind of racing, but that means – for the most part, all 40 cars or, or most of the 40 cars will be racing in one big pack for a good chunk of, of the race. All right, so we are recording this on Saturday, uh, qualifying, a.k.a. the two dual races. They have already taken place. Uh, did we learn anything from those races to suggest how the race tomorrow might play out? Yeah, um, I did a quick road of his live earlier in the week on Wednesday to talk about the dual races and... I thought they would be pretty tame based off of what had happened last year, and especially knowing that uh, there would be a premium on handling this year because of a rule change that NASCAR made to the rear ride height. So the cars are actually riding lower in the rear, um, and, and what that means is if the car is sitting down lower, then it, it it's not up. It's kind of like an airplane, right? You got that wing in the back of the airplane, uh, and it it helps kind of stabilize the airplane. Uh, well, you've got the same thing in NASCAR. If, if, if that rear wing is lower, then there's less stabilization there because there's less downforce there. So the rear end of the car is lower, lower downforce. It means the rear of the car is less stable. And so what we saw is um, we got a few more crashes than I expected, especially in the first dual race where they were racing pretty hard, more crashes than I expected. Um, however, there was also periods of, of the racing both on Sunday, last Sunday's uh, clash race and both of the duels where we saw a lot of single file racing as well in a big pack, like, but all nose to tail um, in one line. So actually two kinds of racing we saw. Um, so to talk about the crash side of things, I do expect because we'll have now 40 cars on the track instead of 20, um, we'll see some crashes. We'll see situations where, uh, like we saw on the first duel race with Ricky Stenhouse, where a car gets underneath the second car kind of is alongside his rear, but, uh, you know, not touching him. But that actually will do enough to take the air off the rear of the other guy. And with the lower downforce now in the back of the car, um, it actually spun out two cars. So Ricky Stenhouse Jr. actually spun out two cars without even touching them, just by getting close to them and taking the air away from essentially the air turning them around or the lack of air turning them around uh, without that rear stability. So I think we'll see situations like that. We saw a crash because Jimmy Johnson had a, a part break. We saw a crash just because people were racing hard at the end. Um, so we saw crashes in a lot of different manners. But as I also mentioned, there are periods of the race 
where cars just drove in a single file line. And I expect we'll see some of that, maybe especially in the last segment, um, because we have the three stages. I expect in the last longer stage, the 120 lap stage, that we might see some single file racing just because it's a little bit easier on the cars when you're when you're running in a single file than when you're running side by side. There's you know better stability. Uh, the handling doesn't quite matter as much as when you have just dirty air all over the place. Uh, and handling will be at a premium this Daytona 500. Then it you know maybe it's some of the more recent Daytona 500s. But I could totally be wrong because last year, as soon as that uh, green flag came out for the final stage, it seems like all the drivers you know forgot how to drive. And we just had crashes left and right that whole final segment. So we might see that again. I don't know, but I, I have a feeling at some points we'll see some single file racing. Interesting. Uh, I have a follow-up question on qualifying. But before I get to that, I want to remind everyone that you can get a 30% discount to a special NASCAR pass through our NASCAR podcast homepage, rotaviz.com slash NASCAR podcast. With that pass, you get unlimited access to all of Nick's premium NASCAR content and your subscription supports the pod. Okay, Nick, about qualifying. Uh, for the first uh, dual race, uh, I looked in the article that you had written uh, where you have the model in there, and I saw that Blaney, in terms of finishing position, uh, was the guy, you know, quote-unquote, projected to finish, uh, you know, in front of the pack. Uh, and so I bet on him, and amazingly, Blaney won. Um, did I just get totally lucky? Or, like, how, how predictive with restrictor plate races uh, is the model that you create. Yeah, you're a total luck box, man. No, uh, I mean, there is some predictive ability to the model. Um, I wouldn't do it if it was completely non-predictive, and it does give you a very good idea of where we expect drivers to finish on average. And that is where they will finish on average if we race this race many, many times over. It's pretty, you know, each of these finishing positions in the model is where a driver would finish on average. The problem is, we're talking about on average, and this is going to be one run of the race. Uh, you know, it's like drawing one ping pong ball from the lotto machine. You don't know what you're going to get. Uh, and, and, you know, you could have a very wide range of outcomes. And Daytona and Talladega have the widest range of outcomes of all of the races on the circuit because of this pack racing. Um, the pack racing allows cars to pass each other a lot easier. You know, it, it, you can go from the back of the pack to the front of the pack so quickly, but just as quickly you can go from the front of the pack to the back of the pack. And we get the big one, which is, of course, when uh, a car in the middle of the pack or maybe even towards the front of the pack gets in contact with another car and they spin around. And because all the other cars are so close to them, you get a 10, 15, 20 car wreck sometimes. So all of that just throws chaos into these races, uh, these restrictor plate races. So as such, the predictive uh, ability of this model is, you know, most races we talk about the R squared of the model being in the 0.5, sometimes the 0.6 range. Occasionally, the high point fours, depending on the track. Here at Daytona, it's only 0.129, so like 0.13, basically. Only 13% of the variance in finishing position for the drivers that finish can be predicted by this model. So, um, you know, it, it'll, it's it's very good for a restrictor play race. 0.13 is. Uh, it's probably one of the highest or best models you'll ever see in predicting restrictor plate races, but... Restrictor plate races are just really hard to predict. That said, I still think you made a good bet on Ryan Blaney because the model did like him. And it says if you were to run this race over many, many, many times, he stands a chance to win a good chunk of them. And if you're getting whatever odds you're getting, I don't know what you're getting, uh, but it probably was better than the Vegas odds. So um, I think you did make a good bet in the long run. Well, there we go. A uh, little teaser. 
I bet on him again. So we'll we'll see if I can just keep that streak going. Uh, okay, let's talk about some DFS strategy. Uh, you mentioned the pack racing, uh, very important to restrictor plates. Uh, how does that impact the strategy that people should be using for Daytona? Yeah, because like I talked about just, just on that previous question where you can go from the back of the front really easily and you have all these crashes uh, or maybe some big ones that take out so many cars, it puts a super premium on place differential. And it's funny because we talked about the clash last week on our on our show previewing the clash and there was only seven, 17 cars in that race. And so place differential is far less important because you could only gain 16 places maximum. And that's one single driver. You know, if he started 17th and one, and of course, Brad Kozlowski started 17th and one. So he actually gained the maximum. But uh, yeah, I mean, that that makes it very tough uh, versus a 40 car field for it to be, you know, place differential to be the most important thing. It's still very important in the winning lineup, I think, had uh, two drivers starting inside the top 10 and then four drivers starting outside the top 10. So kind of what I expected for the clash. But uh, then... Here at Daytona, you're rarely going to see a lineup that has a driver inside the top 10, you know, end up in the winning lineup just because it's so easy for your drivers to come from 35th or 38th or 33rd all the way up to the front of the pack and, and be in the front at the end of the race. Last year's winning lineup, all six drivers started 30th or worse. So that really goes to show the importance of place differential at Daytona just because of the unpredictable nature, the, the crashes. The fact that it's so easy to get from the back to the front, place differential on an absolute premium with a 40-car field. So make sure you're focusing on that this weekend for your DFS rosters. Um, do not start too many drivers. We'll talk about this later in terms of maybe specific numbers or ranges, but uh, do not start too many drivers starting too far forward. Yeah, let's talk specifically about cash games. What is your approach for cash games this weekend, given... Uh you know, everything that we've talked about, specifically the pack racing and uh, the importance of place differential. Yeah, so cash game strategy is is usually really easy at restrictor plate races. You pick the best driver starting the furthest back. And at Daytona, it's very easy. The Daytona 500, it's usually very easily easy because we get a lot of big names who qualify in the back because qualifying is different at the Daytona 500 than at every other race during the season, um, and be, that's because of the dual races. So we saw, I, we talked about those crashes in the dual race. We have a lot of big names starting in the back. The cash strategy, cash game strategy is very easy. You play the big names starting in the back. We don't need to get into the names. You guys know the names. Um, the model will spit out the names. Uh, it's, it's, you know, Jimmy Johnson's, Kyle Larson's, all those guys starting way back in the 30s. You're going to be playing them for your cash game lineup. Uh, the real question comes when, at least for cash games this weekend. If you want to build certain kinds of lineups with or a cash game lineup with maybe all of the biggest names, you actually can't because you actually can go over the salary cap. There's so much chalk in the back. And usually we don't talk about using up all the salary cap in, in DraftKings, you know, in DFS. But in this case, with all the chalk in the back, you actually can go over the salary cap. So you're going to have to make a decision on, on which driver to drop out of your cash game lineup and, and which cheaper guy to put in. Um and and I can't like give full lineups out, so I kind of don't want to say what I think the the swap should be. But uh, if you know if it it should be pretty straightforward on how you approach cash games this weekend. Okay, uh, let's dive into strategy for GPP. Besides picking drivers from the back, uh, what are the things that people should be looking to do? 
Yeah. So with GPPs, um, it's it's really funny because you know we talked about at the top of the show or, or a couple questions into the show about the predictive ability of the model, and it only explains about 13% of the variance in, in finishing position. Um, so that leaves 87% of the variance unexplained. So we really don't understand 87% of this race approximately. Um, that is important because with this wide range of outcomes and all this uncertainty, the market is actually more certain, thinks they're more certain than we should be. So if we look at ownership percentages, um, you'll see that certain drivers are projected very high or certain drivers are projected very low, when in reality, it should be a lot more bunched together. So the way to, to, to approach GPPs at restrictor plates is really by focusing on ownership percentages uh, and, and taking advantage of where drivers will be over-owned or under-owned and then appropriately either using them or fading them, uh, you know, going overweight on them or going underweight on them if you if you multi-enter or, or if you single-enter, fading certain drivers that might be over-owned completely because you only have one entry and then picking a nice contrarian play to go in your lineup uh, to have a good shot at, at the winning roster. So ownership percentages matter, but of course also strategy matters. You don't want to be picking drivers that don't have upside. Uh, you don't want to be picking drivers starting too far forward because that limits upside. You don't want to be picking drivers in the back that have no upside. So um, we can talk about a couple of those names like Greg Galding. I know he starts 34th, but I really think there's no upside for him because the team almost didn't even race this weekend. They There was even talk they may just like uh, do one lap and park it. They ended up racing the whole dual race, but uh, was multiple laps down. I see almost no upside for Greg Galding. If he finishes the race, you know, the only way he'll end up in the winning lineup is if there's 18 or more than 18, more, like 20, 25 cars that crash out of the race. More than half the field crashes out of the race, and Greg Alding finishes 15th because he's 30 laps down or something like that. So, you know, we you still want to have upside in your lineups um, with with not only uh, just place differential, but also with the specific drivers as well. So don't start too many drivers starting too far forward. Don't pick drivers out upside and then focus on ownership percentage where you can take advantage of the imbalance in the uh, public's ability, you know, overconfidence in predicting the race um, versus the actual uncertainty there is. Okay, so uh, we are in a slightly unusual situation in that uh, the article for Daytona 500 is out before we are recording the pod. Uh, in part, that's because practice is so unimportant to Daytona 500. Uh, but and, and people, of course, can find that article at Rotoviz in the NASCAR section. Uh, but what this means is that we have some ownership projections already there uh, that people can consult. Uh, out of the the drivers, are there any that you think uh, have ownerships that kind of pop out to you in terms of maybe uh, they can have too high of ownership for this race? Yeah, so I do think some of the drivers starting at the front, the very front, uh, might go too highly owned. You got Denny Hamlin there in second. His pr projected ownership is around 15%. I think he'll go less than that in actuality because, of course, the ownership is also a model, and it, it explains a good proportion of the ownership percentage. But at restrictor plate races, it's it's the weakest. It fares the weakest just because um, there's the most uncertainty not only in the race, but in projecting what the uh, public will do because the theory around ownership has shifted so much over the past year in restrictor plate races, more and more people understand. So I think Denny Hamlin will go around 10% owned. I still think that's too high. If we look at Denny Hamlin's odds to win the race, right now on, uh, you know, on, on the betting sites, he's 9 to 1, which means 
uh, he actually is probably worse than that to win because the betting, you know, the sites want to actually make money. So uh, nine to one would be like 11% chance of winning. So he really has less than an 11% chance of winning, maybe like an eight or 9% chance of winning. So that would be winning the race. What is his chance of being in the winning lineup? Even if he wins the race, there's no guarantee he'll be in the winning lineup. Last year's race winner, the Daytona 500 winner, Kurt Busch, started, I think, in the middle of the field, somewhere like 11, 12 or something, won the race and wasn't even in the winning lineup. So he actually got some place differential, won the race, and didn't end up in the winning DraftKings lineup. So just because Denny Hamlin has a 9-ish, 8, 9, 10 ballpark percent chance of winning the race doesn't mean he has that much chance of being in the winning lineup. So maybe it's half of that. I don't know. Maybe half the time the race winner ends up in the winning lineup. Um, it's more likely than when, you know, when the driver's starting further back. So maybe it's even less than half for a driver starting second. Uh, I know with a driver starting on the pole, it's extremely rare. So Denny Hamlin should be no more than 5% owned, but he'll probably be 10% owned, something like that. Uh, I think that's a mistake to have more than 5% Denny Hamlin if you're multi-entering you know, 20 lineups. Yeah, throw him in one if you want, or just throw him in zero. It's pretty unlikely he's going to end up in the winning lineup. First, he has to win the race, which is pretty low probability. There's a lot of other good cars who can win the race, and there's a lot of other you know, average cars that can have won Daytona 500s in the past. You know, I'm, I'm thinking Trevor Bain in his rookie year. I'm thinking, uh, you know, there's been times like uh, Ward Burton or Sterling Marlin have won the Daytona 500. You get these lesser names that sometimes win Daytona 500s. By the way, Sterling Marlin is a great name, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a great name. <laughs> and he won back-to-back Daytona 500s too. But um, yeah, so so I think a lot of the guys at the front will go over-owned some. The bigger names, you know, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. will probably grab 8% ownership or something like that. I think it should be less than that. Um, the model projects him just under 15. Uh, I think uh, Joey Logano is projected around 19. I think he'll probably get around 10 to 15% ownership. I think it should be maybe around 5 to 10. Uh, so a lot of the guys at the front I think will go over-owned. But we also can find some names in the back that I think will go over-owned. First and foremost, I think Kyle Larson, He's right now he's projected around 51% ownership. I actually think it will be higher than that because he's starting 38th. The, like I said, the theory has shifted, so um, we see more and more heavy ownership percentage on drivers in the back than we used to see, and this model is, of course, based on some data from the past as well. So I think Kyle Larson will go closer to 60% owned, um, and I think that's too much. If you use the Rotoviz Driver Sim Scores app, so the uh, the Sim Scores app for, for Kyle Larson, it only gives him a 50% chance. So his median projection is a finish of... 15 and a half or something like that. Uh, and that would be probably just good enough to get in the winning lineup. Martin Truex Jr. last year started uh, 35th and finished 13th, and it just barely got him in the winning lineup. So you have to think that might actually even be that 15 and a half median projection for Kyle Larson might actually be a little on the uh, under 50% side. So, you know, I think his ownership should be around 50%, uh, you know, as like a optimal, but I think it'll be around 60%. Um, and, and so I don't mind going a little underweight on Kyle Larson if he's going to be 60% owned. Uh, it's funny if you compare him to, well, I guess I already wrote about this question, so I'll, I'll, I'll hand it back to you because I'm going to address the second part of this in a second. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, randomly out of nowhere, I have a follow-up question. Um, what about some names uh, for guys who could go under-owned? Yeah, so uh, to kind of compare Kyle Larson to another driver – namely Eric Almarola, who starts one spot ahead of Kyle Larson in 37th. 
The model projects Eric Almirola at 23.5%. I think Eric Almirola will go around 45% owned, something like that, just again because of the theory of shifting. Uh, also, Eric Almirola's data is based off of him being from Richard Petty Motorsports. It's hard to, you know, when teams, drivers switch teams and stuff at the beginning of the year, it's hard to have a completely accurate model uh, the first couple races of the season. But uh, so Almirola's on a better team now. He's in one of those Fords. I think he'll get 45% ownership, something like that. And I think that's ballpark about where he should be. But if you compare him to Kyle Larson, for example, in the sim scores, they basically have identical ranges of outcome. And the difference is Kyle Larson is $9,300 versus $7,700 for Eric Almirola. So let's take this example. Let's say we've got Matthew Friedman and Nick Giffen, and we were both selling you, uh, you know, coffee and identical coffee. But Nick Giffen sells his for nine dollars, and Matt Friedman sells his for seven dollars. Why would you ever buy the Nick Giffen coffee when you could buy the exact same Matt Friedman coffee uh, for seven dollars? You should be buying Eric Almirola over Kyle Larson in a one v one for a couple reasons. First, Kyle Larson will have heavier ownership percentage. So the market is more confident in Kyle Larson than Eric Almirola, but they really should be basically have the same ownership percentage. Very, you know, I think it should be like Kyle Larson 50 and Eric Almirola 45, but it's probably going to be more like 60 and 45 or 60 and 40. I personally, if I'm multi-entering, I'm going to flip them and get a little bit of exploitative strategy. I'm going to go maybe uh, 60% Eric Almirola maybe 50% or 45% Kyle Larson, something like that. That's just me personally because I like a little bit of risk tolerance and the upside is worth it uh, to, to you know, to the upside being a $100,000 first place prize in a $600,000 prize pool overall. I think the upside is worth it to flip their ownership percentages in your own personal lineups. A uh, couple other drivers that I think will go under-owned. Um, I think there's a, a, a that range there in the 20s is very interesting. Uh, you've got a couple of big name drivers. I wouldn't say big name, but like name worthy drivers that aren't like completely terrible that don't usually go in our dirt cheap range, like AJ Allmendinger, Chris Buescher, um, even Michael McDowell, Ty Dillon, and then you got Casey Kane and Danica Patrick. Those names right there, I think, could draw a little bit of of under ownership percentageness. Now Casey Kane is projected around 23%, Danica around 20. My personal thought is that Casey Kane will actually go around 20% and Danica might be around 25% just because she's starting a little further back and she's much cheaper. So in this case, I actually think it's the other way. Casey Kane does have a slightly higher projection than Danica Patrick using the sim scores, using the model, using basically every method that we have. Casey Kane has a higher range of outcomes than Danica uh, and he's only starting two spots further away. I think because of the fact that we have so much chalk in the back, and that chalk will go over-owned, people are going to look for ways to save, and they're going to save with Danica Patrick. So I think she goes around 25%, and Kane goes around 20%. I'd like to flip-flop them, and I even might like to go a little heavier on Kane, um, you know, closer to 30%. That's just me if you're multi-entering. Um, now, that said, I don't think either of these guys are too drastically, or guy and girl, I should say, are either too drastically, uh, you know, I guess, um, projected to go under-owned. I like both of them. They're both good picks. But I think where it'll really go under-owned is if you look at the Ty Dillon, Michael McDowell, Chris Buescher, AJ Allmendinger range. These guys are projected anywhere between 5% and 14% ownership. I think that's about accurate for all of them. Um, but uh, I, I like Michael McDowell at 5% ownership when he has maybe an 8 or 10% chance of ending up in the winning lineup. Yeah, that's uh, I like that. Uh, you have 
different guidelines uh, because, as you've mentioned, restrictor plate racing, totally different than everything else that we see throughout the rest of the season. So you have particular guidelines, four of them, four restrictor plate races. Uh, can you talk about those and uh, how they should be applied this weekend? Yeah. So uh, I've got kind of four pillars of, of restrictor plate racing. The first one, don't choose more than a drive, one driver starting 20th or better. Um, I, I guess occasionally if you're multi-entering, you can do two, but you're, usually you're picking uh, both of those guys you know, pretty far back in the top 20, starting in the top, back in the top 20. So like if you picked Jamie McMurray in 19th and Paul Menard in 16th, I wouldn't hate on you for it. Uh, but don't do that too much because it's very unlikely that two drivers starting in the top 20 end up in the winning lineup. So rule number one, um, especially if you're not playing a ton of entries, is don't choose more than one driver starting in the top 20. Preferably even choose zero drivers starting inside the top 20. Um, only 14 drivers in the past 12 years have led more than 40 laps in the Daytona, or I should say 40 or more laps in the Daytona 500. Uh, I should say in the past 13 years because I needed to update that for last year. Um, so that's only you know, 1.1 per year uh, leading more than 40 laps in the Daytona 500. So it's very unlikely we get two air quote dominators. We haven't even talked about dominator points because it's so unlikely we get more than one. And even then, if we have a guy who dominates a portion of the race, it's still unlikely that he ends up winning the race because craziness happens at the end. He could get caught up in a crash. He could get shuffled out of line and sent to the back. So just because the driver dominates, Unlike most other races, you get the dominator, you're, you're set. Dominator, air quote dominator here, probably uh, doesn't even end up in the winning lineup. So only one driver starting in the top 20 maximum, preferably zero. Rule number two, fade the front three. Um, drivers that start one through three have beat 50 DraftKings points just twice. Uh, twice in the past 40 uh, sorry, three times in the past 40 restrictor plate races since 2005. Ricky Stenhouse Jr. did it last year as well, one time uh, from the pole. But uh, yeah, not many times will the drivers in the top three end up with 50 or more DraftKings points. And even then, they don't necessarily end up in the winning lineup. Once was exactly 50 points. Another one was 51 and a half. Stenhouse Jr. last year didn't end up in the winning lineup. And his, when he started from the pole and won the race, still didn't end up in the winning lineup. So the front three, very low probability of being in the winning lineup. Like I talked about with Denny Hamlin, it's probably less than 5%, and he's going to be 10% owned, something like that. Fade the front three, you'll be okay. So I know, Matt, you're picking Ryan Blaney, but that's different because you're betting on him. You're not uh, putting him in your DraftKings lineup. I probably won't have much Blaney, if any, in my DraftKings lineups out of, you know, and I'm going to multi-enter this for sure uh, many, many times over. I'm going to have almost none of any of these guys, maybe even none of all three of them. The yeah, third rule. Sorry, yeah, sorry go ahead. Just to, I was going to say, and, I mean, the interesting thing, and, and I think it, it goes along with the DFS perspective, is the reason why I'm betting on Blaney really has nothing to do with where he started. I mean, a little bit, but that he's, uh, in terms of the odds to win, he's closer to the back than the front. And so I just think it's a, a huge discount uh, in terms of his actual odds of winning in comparison to the implied odds. So that's, I mean, that's why I'm doing it. it it's a similar perspective. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so it, it's just, you know, in this case, you're not worried about place differential. You're just worried about who's going to finish first. Yeah. So rule number three, um, pick no more than two drivers starting uh, 24th or better. Um, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't pick. Uh, and, and like I said, this is kind of like rule number one where you're not picking more than one inside the top 20. Um, if you pick one that starts inside the top 20, 
you're not going to want to pick two other drivers that start between 20th and 24th. That's just too many drivers that far forward in the field. Remember last year, all six drivers in the winning lineup started in the 30s. So, um, you know, if you pick a driver who starts, let's say you pick, um, I'm just going to throw a name out there, uh, Trevor Bain starting 18th. You're also not going to want to pick Martin Truex Jr. starting 24th and Ty Dillon starting 23rd. That's still, even though you're picking the two guys all the way at the back of that range, that's still three drivers starting inside the top 25. You don't want to do that. So no more than two drivers starting inside the top 25. Um, you know, that does mean you can do something like Ty Dillon and Martin Truex Jr. And then four other drivers starting further back than them. That's totally fine. That definitely has a chance of being a winning lineup. Uh, but uh, you don't want to do three drivers inside the top 25. And then finally, the fourth rule, figure out who'd be low owned from 26 on back. Go overweight on them for the most part. Go underweight on those you think will be you know, too highly owned. So again, the rule number four is just playing the ownership percentage game from drivers starting 26 on back. Um, you know, like I said, it's okay if you just completely fade your Greg Galdings of the world, but but by and large, that's what you should be doing. Uh, I do think Brad Keselowski, you know, we talked about who will be overowned. He probably goes above 60% ownership, I would guess. He's the odds-on favorite to win, uh, or if not the odds-on favorite, one of the odds-on favorite to win. He's starting 31st. He won the clash. He was dominant. Uh, you know, one of the top – the Penske cars have been dominant. Even in the dual race, they were 1-2-3 for basically the whole race until the crash in the final lap with Keselowski um, going for the win. And uh, so it will probably be over 60% owned. But you know, f- over 40% of the drivers crash out of this race, so no driver should really be over 60% owned. If, if I think it's okay to go 60 65% on certain drivers if just because there's safety involved and because you want a little extra leverage, I think that's totally fine. But if Keselowski is – going to be 65% owned, I'd rather be 55 or 50% on Brad Keselowski and, and get a little leverage that way just because there's a high probability of people crashing out. So play the ownership percentage game with drivers starting 26th or worse. And so uh, a number of these rules, or I guess all of them, primarily have to do with uh, GPPs. Uh, how are you balancing, because you know some people might not be sure with restrictor plate racing, balancing GPPs versus cash games with you know uncertainty for, for a race like this. Uh, how do you balance them uh, in your personal portfolio? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So I think this is a, a very nice cash game weekend. Um, but uh, I, I think there's a problem with, normally I would say it's a very nice cash game weekend. The problem is I think there's uh, one or two very obvious lineups uh, that most people will be using. But uh, here's the interesting thing. GPP lineups, by definition, are suboptimal, um, <clears throat> just in terms of uh, in terms of actual projection. They might be more optimal in terms of winning uh, the the big 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 prize, but they're suboptimal in terms of you know expected outcome. If you were to replay the race 15,000 times, um, just on like the order of points, uh, final points for that lineup. So running a cash game lineup in a GPP is is and I know I'm going to talk about balancing these as well, but uh, it's something that, that made me think. But um, throwing a cash game lineup in GPP is totally fine on a weekend like this when there's a ton of chalk because it's very likely your cash game lineup is going to cash. Just don't expect it to, A, win, and B, if it does win, expect to split it with 4,000 other people. Um, <laughs> right? Because it is the there is one very obvious lineup. Um, but... Uh, so going back to balance, I think um, you know on most weekends I would like to run a little uh, you know a little more 
cash than normal. But I think because of the unpredictable nature of Daytona, um, it, it, it actually is not very uh, super profitable to, um, you know, go overweight on cash games, you know, like, not, not overweight, but uh, like 80% cash game, 20% GPP. Um, I might go like if, if, you know, if you're one of those people who likes to kind of stick by that rule of thumb, maybe tone down the cash game percentage of your uh, portfolio this weekend, uh, two thirds or something like that, and, and then go one third on GPP. Um, but it really depends on your risk tolerance. I like a lot of risks, so I usually end up playing more GPP than cash. But uh, I also, you know, that's that's my personal risk tolerance and the way my mind thinks uh, and things like that. I know other people are cash game thinkers, so you should be playing more cash games if you're a cash game thinker. I just think this weekend in particular, not necessarily a great weekend to uh, to run um, you know, a ton of cash just because I think there's a couple of very obvious lineups. That said, it is the very first weekend of the year. There will be a big influx of new players because of the $600,000 prize pool. I think it's the largest one we've ever had. I know the past Daytona 500 was $500,000. So um, there should be an influx of, of, of players um, you know, new players. So maybe it's okay to still keep your higher percentage of cash games, but all depends on your personal risk tolerance. Okay. So one of the things that we should talk about, uh, and you, you touched on this with all of the chalk starting near the back. And, uh, that was because of some crashes at the duels. Kyle Larson is starting 38th. Almarola is starting 37th. Jimmy Johnson is 35th. Byron is 33rd and Kozlowski is 31st. Uh, how do you approach roster construction in GPPs with so much chalk? Yeah, so this <clears throat> this is a really good question because it's like, well, we've got all of these good drivers back here. Um, you know, it, it's very likely that some of these will, excuse me, will end up in the winning lineup. How many of them will end up in the winning lineup? All of them? Some of them? None of them? I think you kind of just have to, again, play probabilities. If there's a 40% chance of any one of these drivers you know, crashing out. And it's not exactly 40% for all of them. It's probably less for Brad Keselowski because he's more likely to get out in front and be in front of the mayhem. Um, but it might be a little higher for a rookie like, you know, William Byron it might be like 45, 50%. Um, but, but let's just for simplicity's sake, say there's a 40% chance that any one of these crashes out, then we can realistically, realistically expect out of five of these drivers, um, two of them not to finish, right? So maybe you make rosters that, go anywhere from, uh, uh, you know, so I guess we would expect three of them to finish, three of them to be in the winning lineup. So maybe make rosters that have either two, three, or four of these drivers um, in your in your winning lineup. That will give you, that will cover the bulk range of the expected outcomes. You know, there's still cases where one or zero or all five could end up in the winning lineup, but uh, the, the biggest range that, uh, that most drivers should finish is, um, you know, three of these drivers of those five that I named in the winning lineup. So, uh, I would probably just mostly make rosters where two, three, or four of these drivers end up in the winning lineup. There's some probability that one or zero or all five will end up in the winning lineup. I'm probably not going to do <clears throat> excuse me, any or many with all five because of a couple reasons. A, it's going to be really chalky. B, it's going to use up a lot of salary. So then your your sixth option will also be chalky relative to the five. So like if you if you pick those same five – you're only going to have maybe eight drivers to choose from. And then even then uh, you're going to be gravitating towards a, a, you know, a certain subset of drivers. So that particular roster will be really chalky. Even if you have a low owned piece, just because that low owned piece will be much higher owned in combination with those five drivers. So probably not going to do any with all five, but uh, two, three, and four makes a lot of sense. Um, and definitely I'll do some one and zeros because there is a probability that, you know, uh, two years, this is, this is a really cool story. I like to tell. 
two years ago at the July Daytona race, there was a lot of chalk in the back as well. It was like Jimmy Johnson, Kevin Harvick, Jamie McMurray, Chase Elliott. They were all starting in the back. And while um, while I didn't, I don't think I had many lineups with all of them in my lineup, they were my four or five heaviest owned drivers. My, I know for a fact my five heaviest owned drivers or five of the top six heaviest owned drivers I had were all eliminated in a crash on like lap 12. So my day was done after lap 12. And they all started, you know, 28th or worse, something like that. So there is that probability that something happens. It's crazy because um, there was one guy, I can't remember his username, but he basically stacked all of these drivers starting in the 20s, uh, like a 100 lineup train. And he had like of the top 100 lineups, I think he had like 80 of the top 100 lineups or something like that because he just stacked everybody in the 20s. If there is a 1% probability of that happening, uh, but it, it's it's you know it goes zero percent owned uh, in terms of that strategy. Then it's a profitable strategy for him to do that one percent of the time. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, so yes, there is a possibility that a big one takes out all five of these drivers. It's not unheard of. Um, that said, it's pretty pretty low probability. But I probably will sprinkle in two percent of my lineup, something like that, uh, just because I have so many entries where I have none of the top five. So that's kind of how I'm approaching the chalk here. Is just really playing the probabilities, the, the GTO probabilities with my um, you know roster construction around them. Okay. Uh, while you were talking, I had a thought, and uh, that's always <laughs> a dangerous thing. And uh, so this is a Friedman question, so who knows where this is going to go. But in uh, the story that you just told uh, uh, kind of dovetails into this. So uh, with it being a restrictor plate race, uh, with there being changes, uh, I believe, to the Chevys, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and then with there being changes across the board uh, to some of the cars, uh, just in terms of the, the downforce uh, with the, the re-weighting of, of the back of the cars, and you can explain that much you know, better than I can, and with it just being the first race of the year and people on new teams. So it seems like there's just a lot of uncertainty, and then um, – we saw more crashes in the dual races than we normally see. Uh, within that context, do you think, uh, and, and then also with the the marketplace of NASCAR DFS players becoming more sophisticated and people knowing that they should start drivers toward the back of the field, do you think that there actually might be the possibility for some sort of exploitative strategy that goes a little overweight on some of the drivers earlier, uh, you know, starting, I don't want to say, you know, in the top five, but just some drivers starting a little further up uh, and maybe they can avoid some of the crashes that might happen, you know, kind of later in the pack or you know, you get what I'm saying. Do you think yeah. it is possible that there could be some sort of edge that people might not anticipate by going with drivers who are <clears throat> starting in the front half of the field? Um, yes and no. I think maybe with the front half of the field, probably not as much just because there will be ownership percentage on these guys because we have a lot of people. If we see it every restrictor plate race. There's nobody that's really lower than three or 4% owned, even if they start towards the front. Um, and like I said, even Denny Hamlin starting towards the front only probably has a two or 3% chance of being in the winning lineup. I know probably be eight, 10% owned, but, uh, Towards the front, maybe, um, I think, you know, drivers like uh, Paul Menard, Trevor Bain, in that range, um, especially not Jamie McMurray. I think Jamie McMurray would be pretty popular, but but drivers like Trevor Bain, Daniel Suarez, Paul Menard, just because they have Jamie McMurray right behind them, 
could be under owned. So the model projects them around eight, nine percent. Uh, maybe they go five percent owned, and maybe they really do have an eight or nine percent chance of being in the winning lineup, something like that. Uh, I think there could be some exploitation there. I really think the biggest exploitative strategy comes in this range with AJ Allmendinger, Chris Buescher, Michael McDowell. Um, I think a lot of people end up using Ty Dillon because he kind of is in the same range of outcomes as those other three names in front of him. But all three of those start ahead of Ty Dillon, so people will just kind of gravitate towards the one starting furthest back. I think Michael McDowell, Chris Buescher um, certainly could could have some exploitative uh, strategy here because they're starting a lot further in the 20s forward and they have some bigger names immediately behind them or, or similar or bigger names immediately behind them like Ty Dillon, Martin Truex Jr. Uh, we know Brennan Gaughan was in the winning lineup last year. He starts 25th. I think he'll be pretty low owned, but there will be people who use him. Then we talked about Kane, Danica. So there are some names with similar range of outcomes that start further back, which would probably keep these guys under owned. And, you know, there's just as much chance that a Ty Dillon or a, uh, a Casey Kane get caught up in a wreck as a Chris Buescher or a Michael McDowell. So theoretically, they should be like, you know, if you go from A.J. Allmendinger, uh, we'll skip Truex here, but if you go from A.J. Allmendinger, Chris Buescher, Michael McDowell, Ty Dillon, skip Truex, skip Gone, and then Casey Kane, skip Earnhardt, and then, and then Patrick, it should be like, you know, my, my thinking is it should probably be something like in terms of optimal, 7%, 7.5%, or, you know, like 9%, 9 9.5%, 10%, 10.5%, and then there's a couple spots to Kane, so maybe 13 and then a couple spots to Danica, 15 It's It's probably all shifted a lot higher than that in terms of what the optimal is. I'm just throwing numbers out there. But they're all projected, other than maybe Kane and Danica, to be under-owned in terms of their uh, probability to win the race or to be in the winning lineup. So I, I think you're onto something there. I agree with all the theory. There would be much more heavily ownership and percentage in the back than we've seen in the past. Uh, we saw that with Brad Keselowski in the duel, 88% owned. No driver should ever be 88% at any restrictor plate race, even the duel where we thought it was going to be pretty calm. Um, but yeah, with this degree of uncertainty, I do think uh, there will be a more overconfidence in starting drivers in the 30s. I will definitely have some of these exploitative lineups. Mm-hmm. Uh, single or three max entry strategy, is that any different than multi-entry strategy when it comes to all the chalky drivers at the back? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of is just because you can't, you know, you can't go 40% on a driver with three entries or, or 45% on a driver or 5% on a driver. So you kind of have to make some decisions here. I like personally um, in a single entry, uh, just going with an optimal strategy of, you know, I, we think three of these drivers will end up in the winning lineup uh, most likely, or at least avoid the crashes. And, and when you, if they avoid the crashes, they'll probably end up in the winning lineup given how good their cars are. Uh, so I like going with maybe three of these five drivers that we talked about in your lineup and then using three other drivers kind of starting towards the back for a single entry that gets you off of some of the chalk, right? If you, if you decide Kyle Larson is the guy you want to play and Eric Amarola is the guy you want to play and maybe, uh, Brad Keselowski, then you're off of Jimmy Johnson and you're off of William Byron. That'll get you away from, you know, 70%, uh, ownership right there combined, something like that. So, um, you know, that's a good way to be contrarian is not to play four of these guys or five of these guys, which will be incredibly chalky. Uh, and I think a lot of people will do, especially in a single entry where people like to be usually a little safer with their pick because they know they only have one bullet. I would just play the optimal strategy, <clears throat> excuse me, the optimal strategy and by picking three of these guys of, of the five we kind of mentioned there. If you have three entry max, 
then um, you have some decisions to make. Do you want to just pick a core of these three and, and do that? Do you want to mix and match three of them? But again, I would do the same thing. I'd probably pick three in each lineup and just mix and match them or just choose a core if you want to be more risky. So it, again, depends on your risk tolerance. But I think when you're really limited, you go closer to the optimal uh, without being too chalky, then I think that is kind of the way to go. So that's how I would approach single entry or three max this particular weekend. All right. A, uh, another Friedman question here. So we've had sort of like the, the preseason. We've had the clash. We've had the two duels races. We've gotten to see uh, some drivers with new teams in new situations. Uh, you know, we've gotten to see the, the cars uh, with different technological changes. Uh, what are your big picture thoughts on the manufacturers at this point? Yeah, um, definitely for Daytona, I think the Fords are the strongest manufacturer. And I know people recognize that. So that also could inflate Ford ownership a little bit. You know, Brad Keselowski, um, even Ryan Blaney starting towards the front or Joey Logano towards the front. Like I can, I think we'll see over 10% Logano. And I think that's, you know, probably too much there uh, in terms of ownership, but the Fords are definitely the manufacturer to beat. Uh, they've been dominant in every race they've run. Um, obviously, uh, that, that second duel there, <clears throat> excuse me, that second duel there, there weren't very many, you know, there weren't very many Fords in that second duel. So Chase Elliott ended up winning it, but, uh, Kevin Harvick did finish second in that duel. So, um, you know, it, it, that's a Ford right there. Um, you know, like Clint Boyer finished a couple spots behind his teammate, uh, Kevin Harvick there in that duel. So the Fords are strong. Uh, Eric Almarola is running strong. Ricky Stenhouse Jr. Looked like he had a very strong car in the first one. Um, you know, but he didn't really have a lot of help because, uh, the Penske guys were working hooked up together. And, uh, so yeah, the Fords are definitely, definitely the strongest manufacturer. After that, I think it's a toss up between Toyota and Chevy. We've seen Chevys be really fast by themselves and we've seen Toyotas work together very well. Um, so I think uh, it's kind of just a toss up, a coin flip between those two manufacturers for who has the edge over the other. Uh, in, in other words, I don't actually think there is an edge between either of those manufacturers. I think, um, you know, it, I wouldn't gravitate towards one over being better than the other. That said, this is a restrictor plate race going forward when we talk about Atlanta and so forth. We'll have to see how these things play out because I think there will be some separation among Chevy and Toyota, uh, maybe at the beginning of the season, but uh, that could close as the, the season goes on. But for this weekend, Ford number one, Chevy and Toyota kind of uh, duking it out for number two. Interesting. Any other uh, final pro tips uh, for GPP or cash games this weekend? Yeah, I think uh, your question kind of was led into the final pro tip there. So, you know, you said it was dangerous, but uh, you, you know, living on the dangerous side paid off this weekend. We got to talk about that alternate strategy of, of going heavier on drivers in the 20s, and I think that worked out very nicely. So good job on that. Uh, good job on that, that question. Sweet assist, Friedman. Uh, final question here. Uh, who do you think is going to win? And I know with restrictor plates, it's, I mean, you're basically rolling the dice here, but uh, if you had to pick one driver, who do you think ends up winning? So I'm going to be annoying and I'm going to say it'll be either Paul Menard or Eric Almarola. Interesting. Any particular reason why? Fords. And uh, I think, um, you know, we could, we could see some mayhem here. And I think one of the unlikely names will, will, uh, emerge from the mayhem in a Ford. All right. Uh, everyone, you heard it here first. Go go bet your life savings on it. 
Um, Actually, I'm curious. What are their odds? Uh, I should pull that up because I might place a bet down on these guys. So, you know, I got a casino right across the street here. Uh, that is true. Uh, <clears throat> if, you, if you give me one moment here, I could uh, give you their odds on my bookie. Um, so you mentioned Menard and Almirola, right? Yeah, yeah. Menard and Almirola. Okay, so uh, Almirola is uh, plus 2,500. And Menard, uh, looking further down, Menard is 4,000. Yeah, I don't love Almirola at that price, but Menard I would probably take a stab on. If you go look at, <clears throat> again, if you look at the projections, um, and I'll, I'll sort them by ascending. Paul Menard kind of projected to finish right in the middle of the field, but he is upgraded in equipment this year, not only going from RCR to, uh, you know, to a Penske affiliate, essentially, you know, the same car Ryan Blaney won in last year. But he's also in a Ford, so that should give him an extra boost. And the model, of course, can't predict the extra boost that the Fords get. Uh, and then you add in the uncertainty. I kind of like Menard at 40 to 1. I don't hate it. I don't think it's a losing play. We saw him in contention for a win at a restrictor plate race last year. And now he just has a little bit extra uh, goodness to his side there with the team and the manufacturer. I like it. Good uh, good stuff there. Good, uh, good little gambling talk there at the very end. Uh, anything else to add here, Nick? Nothing else, man. I just, uh, everybody should enjoy the Daytona 500. The way I like to enjoy it is, uh, throw something on the grill, crack open a, your favorite cold one and, uh, have the laptop on the coffee table or something like that. So you can follow all the swings. You're probably going to be, you know, plus many, many, uh, times your buy-in at some point, And you're probably going to be down, uh, most of your bankroll at, not bankroll, but most of what you entered at some point as well. That's just the nature of restricted plate racing. So enjoy the sweat. Enjoy the Daytona 500. Uh, and uh, I'm just glad we have uh, 36 races ahead of us. Uh, Road of his life. Road of his life already happened. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So we're recording this on Saturday. <clears throat> it happened last night at Friday. Can people uh, watch that somewhere? Can they still find yeah, it? I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's on demand on my personal uh, Twitch page. So uh, just go over to my Twitch page, twitch.tv slash Tecate, like the beer, and uh, go to videos, and you'll be able to see it there. So Road of His Live already happened. It worked best for uh, my schedule and for the majority of respondents to my Twitter poll. All right, sweet. That is going to do it for this NASCAR edition of On the Daily. For Nick Giffen on Twitter at Rotodoc, I'm Matt Friedman, Matt at the Oracle. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to On The Daily, the Road of His Daily fantasy sports podcast powered by Road of His Radio. And special thanks to Randy E. Aguabo for the introduction. Please review the podcast on iTunes under the established Road of His Radio feed. Contact us via email on the daily DFS at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at on the daily DFS. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. They call you the Grill Master. You've seared the thickest porterhouse in the butcher shop. And as you lift that first forkful to your mouth, you savor the moment. 
get amazing offers during the Mercedes-Benz Summer Event, like the 2019 C-Class sedan and GLC SUV. The perfect recipes of driving performance. Plus, you can enjoy six months of Sirius XM All Access included. The Mercedes-Benz Summer Event, now serving limited-time offers on a select lineup of vehicles. Offers end September 3rd. Mercedes-Benz, the best or nothing. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.